Well, today is December 24th, Christmas Eve, as we say. And I want to take a few minutes to remind you of genuine Christian worship on Christmas. What is genuine Christian worship? And I want to do that because being December 24th, in a few hours, Christian pilgrims throughout the world are going to embark and break out and grand spectacles of worship, which can only be biblically referred to as vain or pagan or Judaized. And I want to spare you of that. I want you to understand this Christmas what it is that you're either witnessing or even perhaps participating in. And I want that for you because I want you to understand the glories and the wonders and the joy of worshiping in spirit and in truth. So this is a reminder that genuine Christian worship is in spirit and in truth. So, of course, I don't want to just simply give you my opinion. I want to give you some text to help you see where the biblical foundations of my thought is. And we begin with that with John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is early in Jesus' ministry in the gospel according to John. And Jesus was in uh, Jerusalem. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to the temple. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And John 2.15 reads this way. So he made a whip out of cords, and drove all the temp out from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16 says, To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. In the emphatic. His disciples remembered that is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, the Jews then responded to him, as you can only imagine, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, this may seem and this is commonly referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple. But the text itself says nothing about him cleansing anything. What Jesus did 
clearly as he put an end, he condemned and put an end to that temple system and then declared his own body to be the temple of God. So let me ask you today, on this Christmas Eve, where does God dwell today? Where is God's presence found today? Now you might say, well, he's everywhere. God is omnipresent. And that's certainly true. So let me ask it this way then. Where is God's covenant presence with his people to be found? Where is God's covenant presence to be found today? I want to answer that immediately. Let's go on to another text. John chapter 4. A familiar story to many of you of Jesus encountering a woman at the well, the well of Jacob. And at, towards the end of the conversation, she says to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the spirit, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Well, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. End quote. So Jesus has overturned the tables. He's rebuked the money changers. He's um, demanded that they quit making his father's house a marketplace. And then declared his own body to be the temple, the new temple the dwelling place of God's covenant presence. And then to this woman, who is outside of the covenant, he declares to her, and make a note now, that the time is coming and has now come. Jesus meant those words, and has now come. He meant what he said, didn't he? When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So the time has come 
for true worshipers to no longer wor worship based on geographic locations. There is a new temple and worship is not to be tied to geographic locations, all, all, whether it be Jerusalem or some mountain or Rome or Wittenberg or Los Angeles, Seattle or San Francisco or Bend, Oregon or whatever. And he says that this is the kind of worship in spirit and truth the fathers, the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Do you know that the Father is seeking you? The Father is seeking you to worship him in spirit and in truth. If you are in Christ, God is not seeking you to worship anywhere else or any place else or any other way. Let me say that again. If you are in Christ, God is not seeking you out to worship him in any certain place, in any certain way, other than in spirit and in truth. God is not seeking for you to worship him in a location. He's not seeking for you to worship him in a temple. He's not seeking you to worship him in a mega church campus or a basilica or a cathedral or any other sacred building. And yet, Within the next several hours, this grand spectacle will begin. Untold millions, perhaps billions, of Christian pilgrims will gather in mega churches holding anywhere from five to 10,000 people or more, with grand stages, lighting, atmosphere, music even pyrotechnics, all designed to alter your mood and to create an altered state of consciousness. Cathedrals and basilicas, including St. Peter's in Rome, will soon have a grand spectacle of procession being led by, in Rome, the Pope himself. There will be a boys' choir singing in the background, creating a, a sense of the presence of angels. Then there will be incense, artwork, vestments, statuary, liturgy, everything designed to create a presence of God, to to um, manufacture, to fabricate the presence of God. But I'm here to tell you, beloved, it is an illusion. Whether it's the mosh pit worship that's going on, on down the street tonight from me in the local mega church, 
where people in the lead worship leaders by professional musicians will be working overtime to help you get into a different mood. Worship leaders will be standing, men and women waving their arms, cheering them on. People will be waving their hands. There'll be repetitious songs, loud music, and people will experience something of a buzz. There will be, there will be physiological and psychological responses. So beyond just the temples and the sacred buildings and the cathedrals and the basilicas and the megachurch campuses, there's what this type of worship does to you. It creates a counterfeit sense of presence in your life and then calls it God. A counterfeit experience. And then tells you it's God. This is very important. It's very, very much a burden on my heart. Because what it's robbing you of is the glories and the wonders and the joy of knowing where God actually dwells. Let me turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 47. And this is part of Stephen's diatribe against the Jews, which led to his stoning, by the way. And I'll begin at verse 45. He says, After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, Stephen goes on to say to these temple Jews, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes the prophet, saying, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will be my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Let me say that again. Let me read that again. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? It was those words that led Stephen to then state, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Well, this was serious business for Stephen. 
as I say, he ended up so offending these Jews, these good temple-worshipping Jews, that they stoned him to death. A young man by the name of Saul, who would one day become Paul, was standing there consenting to all this and holding their coats. So heaven is my throne, says the prophet, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now this is a New Testament theme, beloved. Let's turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul is now addressing the Greeks in Athens. And at one point in his sermon, his evangelistic sermon to these Greeks in the Areopagus, he says this, beginning with verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul's making it very clear to these people, very clear to these Greeks, that unlike their gods, the true God, the God of heaven and earth and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ does not live in temples made with hands. That the presence of God does not dwell within temples, in buildings, in sacred spaces. He goes on to say, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, Paul tells the Greeks, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now listen carefully. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, says Paul. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God does not dwell within temples made with hands. Nor should we think of God as gold or silver or stone or in images made by human design and skill, human art, and that includes film, by the way. That includes Hollywood, by the way. That includes the Chosen series, by the way. What other forms of 
false counterfeit presentations of the gospel men might put forth. All these things are illusions, folks. All these things are attempted to distract you, and they're Satan's design to distract you from the great reality that God has now taken up residence within and among his people. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians, these former pagans, he tells them, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? Now he's speaking corporately here. He's speaking to the, the community. Do you not know that you, you all, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Do you not know? Let me ask you, do you not know today? Do you not know? I've talked to Christians in the last two weeks to have every intention to attending the grand spectacle at the local cathedral because it's something they're not familiar with and they want to go see the beauty and the art and the incense and the procession and they want to see the grand music and the display of the choir. They want to see the vaulted ceilings and the processions of the priests. To those people, I say very clearly, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You can go to any local cathedral, whether it's Greek Orthodox or Roman, Catholic, or Episcopal, and you will see a lot of incredibly massive display of architecture, art, statuary, icons, altars, stained glass, everything designed to invoke a sense of God's presence, to communicate to you a sense of God's presence. But it's an illusion. You can't fabricate God's presence. You can't create God's presence. You can't do that with art. You can't do that with smells and bells. And you can't do that with the evangelical world with their and their Pentecostal or with their mosh pit worship. You can't work people up enough to fabricate well enough the presence of God. You can't do that. God doesn't operate that way. In 1 Corinthians 6.19 then, that's the corporate call. In 6.19 he says again, Flee sexual immorality, all other sins a person commits outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? If you are in Christ, you are just as the one who, Jesus, who declared his own body to be the temple of God. And we are in the body of Christ. We are collectively the body of Christ today. And then individually, our own bodies are also temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that? 
Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Your bodies are sacred. Your bodies are the sacred dwelling place of God. Treat them well. Exercise self-care. And above all, don't engage in activities, more immoral activities that degrade your body. Your body is a sacred place. Your body is the dwelling place of God. Now, should Christians gather? Of course. Should Christians gather this evening and, and celebrate together the Incarnation? Absolutely. I am more joyous about the Incarnation today than I've ever been before. I'm not excited about Christmas. <laughs> I'm not, I see, as a pastor or counselor, what that does to people, what this holiday season does to people, especially families, and their finances. But I am more joyous about the Incarnation today than I've ever been before. I have a greater experiential and existential uh, sense of the Incarnation today than I've ever had before. But I can tell you it's one of the reasons why that is, is because I've learned where God dwells. And I've learned that God is seeking me out to worship him in spirit and in truth and not in temples and basilicas and cathedrals and, and mosh pit worships at gigantic, huge megachurch campuses or even in the smallest little Baptist church that's doing their best to replicate that big megachurch nonsense. Because that's what it is, my friends. It's nonsense. It's not of God. It's not of the spirit. You are of the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually and collectively. So when you gather for Christmas Eve, you don't need sacred buildings. You don't need priestcraft, stagecraft, and what some might even call witchcraft. You don't need someone to try to, to manufacture a sense of, the, of some presence, some experience, some, some experiential physiological reaction in your body and then call that the presence of God. That's not what you need. You need each other. The reason I am so joyous, one of the reasons I'm so joyous about the Incarnation today is I recognize that the Word of God is still being made flesh in you and I and our fellowship with one another. When I look at my wife, I see the fact that this is a person in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. I can go in my closet and I can spend time with the Lord individually and that's very valuable. But I dare not dismiss or, or uh, minimize the fact that when I come out of that closet and I look at my wife, I see a person in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. She is God's residence, just like I am to her. And we are to each other. And when we gather together to celebrate the Incarnation, 
let's recognize what it is we're celebrating. Let's not be fooled into thinking that somehow you would think, you would think that we're celebrating uh, God's architecture. We're celebrating how men have created grand buildings. What we're celebrating is that God has taken up residence within a man. What we're observing is that God has become flesh and dwelt among us, and, and the apostles saw his glory. The glory as of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that he still has a body, and we are that body, and his presence is still in the world through you and I. And so we can gather and we can rejoice and we can relish our fellowship with one another knowing that we don't need to look any further than our ability to reach out and touch the next brother or sister next to us and know that we're taking hold of the temple of God. We don't need loud music. We don't need pyrotechnics. We don't need everything that is going to be put on display in the next 24 to 48 hours, folks. What we need is to be reminded, so I'm begging you, I'm pleading you with you today, to remember, to remember that the Father is seeking you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is safe to say, without melodrama, that most of what's going to go on in the next 48 hours, 48 hours is called worship, is everything and anything but. It's what Jesus condemned in Mark chapter 7 as vain worship. It's hypocritical. It's hollow. It has one purpose, and that is to serve as a veneer. A veneer for greed, exploitation, and pride. Hypocritical, heartless, hollow worship. A pretext for greed exploitation and pride. That's the alternative to worshiping in spirit and in truth. When did this all start? How did this all start? How did we get here? Well, let me real briefly close by telling you that we got here after 300 years of Christians worshiping in spirit and in truth, without any model for an institutionalized Christendom, without any model for temple worship having been developed, the Emperor Constantine, in 313 AD, issued his Edict of Milan, the Tolerance for Christianity, which it led to him eventually embracing Christianity, seeking to make it the, the official religion 
of Rome, the Roman Empire, he had no model to, to draw on. He wanted to institutionalize Christianity and make it a formal Christian religion of the empire, a state church institutionalized religion. But there was no model. There was no Christian model. He couldn't look back at the previous 300 years and say, well, how do these people worship? What do, what do they do? How do we make this thing visible throughout the empire? Let me say that again. How do we make this thing visible throughout the empire? And the only model he had to draw from was his own pagan right roots, his own pagan temple worship and Judaism and the temple temples and synagogues of Judaism. The history of Judaism. Judaism and pagan Rome and Greece had the temples, had theocracies. And so he drew from those, not from the Christian ethic, not from the Christian. No, the Father seeks such to worship him in spirit and truth. That wouldn't serve Constantine's purpose. So he withdrew from Judaistic roots and pagan roots and created this thing that we now call Christendom. By the 5th century, we had sacred buildings. We had the Levitic, Levitical priesthood being a sacrificing priesthood, by the way, being reinstated. We had sacred spaces, sacraments, by the numbers of seven instead of the ones that the Lord himself instituted, the baptism and his supper. And we had a very visible Christianity. The people could look around the country, look around the, the empire and see Christianity for the first time in marble statues and crucifix art, magnificent buildings. But God had nothing to do with it. God has not changed his mind, folks. God did not change his mind and start and say, you know what? I told, I told my people that I don't dwell with temples and temples made with hands, but you know, it's it's okay. I'll go back to doing that. You know that in most cathedrals, in many sacred buildings in Roman Catholicism and other liturgical traditions, they have a little candle that's burning all the time, perpetually. You know why they do that? Because it's supposed to remind us that God's presence is there. Many years ago, when my daughter was still young, we were visiting an Episcopal church, and my daughter, not knowing better, ran up on top of the uh, altar after the service, and a woman got very upset with her because you're not supposed to go on, on top into that altar area without vestments on, first of all, and she was violating that sacred space. We had another time when we were visiting a liturgical church and 
my son was young. He's He was uh, probably 10. And we hadn't noticed that he wore his baseball cap into the church. And normally I would have asked him to take it off, but I didn't. And, and we, we just, over, it was just an oversight. But on the way out of church that morning, having visited this liturgical church, another woman followed us out, and she was very upset with us because he had worn his hat during the service. And she scolded him and then scolded us, telling us that this was the house of God. You see where this goes? You see how far we have drifted from the dock of reality? When it comes to Christmas worship, we have drifted so far from the dock that we can't see the land that the dock is tied to any longer. So come back. Repent. Just as Paul called us to in Acts chapter 17. He's calling all people to repent. For he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world through a man that he has appointed and he's given us assurance of that day to come by raising that man from the dead. That man whom in himself was the temple and whose body today remains the temple. So celebrate the Incarnation in the next 48 hours. Rejoice with your friends and family. And rejoice at the wonder and the grandeur and the glory and the grace that is so evident in the fact that God has taken up residence within you and among you in your fellowship. Amen.